Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. Welcome. This is Everything Cooperative. I'm Vernon Oaks. And this morning, we have the absolute pleasure of having Mr. Roger Green back on the show. He was on a couple years ago. Roger is in New York. Good morning, Roger. Good morning. How are you this morning, sir? I'm doing fine. Can't complain. How are you? Great, great, great. So, Roger, I'd like you to bring us up on what you're doing in New York and the health care system you were telling us about. So we were talking before about the New York health care system and their $40 billion supply chain. And can you just give us an update of what you're doing and what you've been doing uh, for the last two years? Yeah, well, thank you. Appreciate it. We had started off on a journey over five years ago after observing the consequences of one of the a number of hospitals closing, how that impacted on the local economy. And so we did an autopsy of the healthcare sector supply chain, discovered that, you know, between the voluntary hospitals and the uh, municipal hospitals in New York City, they had a supply chain that had purchase orders that valued $40 billion. However, most of those contracts through the group purchasing system were being outsourced to the Global South or to right to work for less states. So we brought that to the attention of the governor and, uh, you know, essentially put pressure on the healthcare sector anchor institutions to begin the process of redirecting those purchase orders to the local economy. And the idea was to address the social determinants of health, which includes the toxic triggers of, uh, you know, abject poverty, relative poverty, the wage stagnation and wealth inequality that actually contributed to poor health outcomes. So we'd begun this journey and they had agreed, but it was more, you know, you know hell is, you know, in the details. And we felt that it wasn't enough just to create an agreement to do the purchase, but that you needed to build an infrastructure that would support a number of new enterprises that would be aligned with the healthcare sector supply chain. And for us, our priority was using the uh, model of the Mondegron One Worker, One Vote initiative that was created between the United Steelworkers and Mondegron Cooperative Federation thanks to the leadership of people like Michael Peck in particular. So we have called for unionized worker co-ops, uh, creating incubators for unionized worker co-ops, working with organized labor and companies, including the Mondegon Federation, to create this new ecosystem. But, you know, we got pushed back, to be quite honest. So we called for another meeting with the governor's secretary of health and said that, you know, 
that there's still problems with the supply chain. And so he agreed to reset an examination of this process. And then what happened was that meeting occurred two weeks before the governor created the, the shutdown of the entire state in response to the COVID pandemic, the pathogen. So what happened as a result of that, it created, I guess what Dr. King used to call creative tension, where people began to understand that what we were talking about was essential. fact was that during the pandemic surge, there was no supply chain. You know, there was complete disorder, no efficient delivery of PPEs or other essential products uh, to the hospitals, which actually caused the death of frontline healthcare workers as well as patients in the community. And that, you know, you saw that visibly mm-hmm. with the news reports occurring all over the country. What you had was basically hospitals competing against hospitals for the same materials, cities competing against cities, state competing with state and nation state, you know, countries competing with each other to get these essential supplies. So what we think was that, you know, our, our arguments were prescient and it has now created new momentum for public policy in support of, um, of our proposal. So at this point in time, we're actually in collaboration with Mondragon LKS in the creation or co-creation of a health enterprise hub, which we, which would be called the equity incubator which would be located in the Navy Yard. We're working on that with Mondragon LKS, and the idea is to have a siting of uh, light manufacturing for PPEs as well as advanced manufacturing for, you know, respirators and other kinds of equipment like that that would be needed during regular operating times, but most most certainly uh, during uh, a surge. So, you know, it's a journey. It's fragile, you know, because, you know, a number of people are still on the learning curve with respect to our proposals and our mission. Um, but I think that the crisis itself created a new awareness about this relationship between the hospitals and their communities, that far too many of the hospitals have been alienated uh, from the local communities, that they primarily serve as um, vehicles primarily for um, medical services, which are needed. Uh, but given it's the resources of the hospitals, uh, we have argued that they should be orchestrated to address, again, the social determinants of health, to eliminate the toxic triggers that cause poor health in these communities. So that, that's, that's what's happening. Um, we are right now, again, like I said, working on three health enterprise hubs one for life wait wait wait, 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 wait let, me, let me stop you a minute though sir i got i gotta go back and we'll come back to those three that you're working on okay but here's what i got i got that you said one of the benefits i'm, I'm using different words one of the benefits of COVID 19 is it showed people how your arguments are real it helped yeah. you to be able to say look this uncovered it uncovered pre-existing conditions in my family there is high blood pressure and diabetes generations of trauma uh, creates 
uh, generation of stress, generations of being black in America and racism and Jim Crow and not being able to get jobs or uh, paying jobs and not being able to get good housing or good health care. It just creates from generation to generation these health issues. And you said the social determinants of health are these things, poor pay, no wealth, no no assets, not ability to pay for health so you don't have good care. Uh, just all putting environmental toxic waste dumps in our neighborhoods. I mean, just all these different things cause black folks, brown folks, native people to have poor health. And Absolutely. pandemic showed it. That's Help right. your argument. No, no, no question. No question. It absolutely did. And, you know, some people will understood it, you know, but like I said, that, you know, you know, this is a journey. It's a process. But the, the, this pathogen uh, created a crisis. And as, you know, Dr. King called the crisis a two-edged sword, you know, a time of despair, but also a time of opportunity. So it created an opportunity for us to uh, highlight these contradictions and also a program that could address the contradiction. And so we had been in the process of creating uh, two organizations, one called Brooklyn Community Collaborative, which is um, an organization of a number of the uh, founded uh, with uh, the support of organized labor, particularly 1199, New York Nurses Association, and community activists like myself and, and others, and then also heads of the major uh, hospitals in Brooklyn, and one in particular, um, one Brooklyn health system that's headed up. The leadership is a sister by the name of LeRae Brown, very progressive, forward-thinking uh, health care administrator. And she, you know, she gets it. And also allies at uh, one of the, the largest hospitals in Brooklyn, which is Mamamides Hospital. And there were some strong allies there who had been aligned with us, you know, in support of our program. So we created an organization called Brooklyn Community Collaborative that also has a um, another arm called Citizens Share Brooklyn, um, which is the um, organization that will focus on organizing a ecosystem that would be uh, linked to and supportive of unionized worker co-op. And the idea, you know, create opportunities for employee ownership that provides both living wage and um, shared profit, shared equity for workers. Living wage is critical, particularly in New York and Los Angeles and Chicago and in all of those places, high, high rent district, high cost of housing, taxes. So... Yeah. Living wage, and you get a chance of sharing in the profits. Okay, absolutely. Yeah, and 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 we're working on you know housing programs as well. We've done a series of work um, assessing the needs for housing. In fact, we were very instrumental in pushing for building of housing on the hospital grounds, and so that is ongoing as as we speak. But just to show you um, the challenges of all of this. Um, but, but let's come back with the challenges after our first break. Okay. I really enjoy listening to the things that you all are doing in Brooklyn, New York, and wanting to see that spread throughout the U.S. So I want to 
come back right after the break and, and pick up with uh, the challenges in building these houses on, on these ho- uh, hospital grounds and talk about other things that can do to bring us out of coronavirus. We'll be right back. Please don't touch that down. Your news talk station. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks and a program that everything cooperative. We have Mr. Roger Green on, a brother in New York that uh, has extensive knowledge, having worked in uh, government and looking at and studying the economics of the hospital system in New York, having a they purchased $40 billion worth of goods and services, but they were buying them. Over, buying overseas and going down south and buying them in the neighborhoods in which they live were deteriorating. So, Roger, with groups of people are looking how to bring that economic well-being into Brooklyn, back into New York. So you were talking about building houses on the hospital campuses and some of the problems that you're having in doing that. Can you tell us what those are? Yeah, it's... Um it's a very interesting story. You know, we we had organized what's called um, participatory action research. We organized students, uh, high, college students and high school students who lived in areas you know, that were impacted by um, structural, racial, and economic inequality to do a study of what are the key toxic triggers uh, for poor health in those neighborhoods. And two neighborhoods, uh, the overwhelming consensus uh, coming out of the um, narratives of the residents in those neighborhoods was housing. And so we took that information and, you know, secured a, a meeting with the governor's secretary of health, his um, commissioner of housing, and the students presented the data and then called on the governor to, you know, institute a program to build housing on the campuses of the of the hospitals, and which he did. So in, I think it was March of uh, 2017, he came to Mega Evans College to make that announcement. And what, what happened was when we started looking at the data, particularly right, <laughs> right before, again, the COVID um, pandemic, we did another study, the students did another study, and found that if the houses were built based upon the existing income formula, it would price out healthcare workers. So what happened again, what, and so we had a meeting at Interfaith Medical Center where the governor's reps came in and the worker council for 1199 and reps from Neisner and local community activists raised these issues and called for the creation of uh, workforce housing for healthcare workers, one, and then also that the housing should be placed within a community land trust. And so what happened, just as, again, we were about to, um, you know, put together a program to address these issues, the pandemic hit, and it was another example of why we need to address, the, you know, the toxic triggers that cause poor health in these communities. Because what happened was 
a number of the healthcare workers had been displaced from the neighborhoods that were in close proximity to their working places, the hospitals, the ambulatory care facilities. So in response to the crisis, the government, both city and state, had to pay for workers to stay at local hotels during the surge. Mm-hmm. And so we had, now we had additional evidence of what was happening. And so what we did, in fact, was um, we're completing a documentary that's being organized by students. It's called I'm Sick and Tired of Being Sick and Tired and Fannie Lou Hamer. Uh, and the documentary um, interviews a number of the healthcare workers um, with their experience during the surge. And a number of the healthcare workers in the documentary talk about how they had to travel long hours to get back and forth to work and to, from home to work, and that it impacted on their health and it also impacted on the quality of uh, patient care for their patients during the surge. So all this is, is evidence that you need a holistic approach in terms of addressing this crisis. How do you build back better, as the Biden-Harris administration has articulated? You know, it, it has to be an interdisciplinary approach, organic approach that starts with healthcare and you know, in the view of the healthcare crisis, but as also viewing it again as an opportunity to use the resources within healthcare to build back better, to create, you know, better communities, you know, to ensure that there's not only health but wealth within these communities. And how you can generate wealth also is through housing, through limited equity co-op and organizing the resources of both city, state, federal government, and private sector to do that. So we're now in, you know, negotiations with the developers to readjust their formula for the housing, to look at the average neighborhood minimum income, uh, to adjust that so that healthcare workers would have an opportunity to live in the housing that's going to be built on uh, the hospital ground. Uh, not to exclude other folks, but most of those healthcare workers actually already uh, live in these neighborhoods. In Brooklyn, just for 1199 alone, there are 94,000. Uh, healthcare workers who live in Brooklyn and in areas that we were researching, which is in the area of Brownsville and East New York, which is called East Brooklyn, um, there are over 24,000 healthcare workers for 11.99 alone. More from DC 37's local 420 and Nisna. So there's a huge number of workers who are in need of authentic, affordable housing. Okay, I want to go all the way back to you. Because this is exciting to me, having learned about co-ops through housing and then studying housing, uh, Keith Ellison, congressman out of Minnesota, he said, um, a house is to a family like a bowl is to baking a cake. And when he first said, I heard him at a lunch, and he was a keynote, and I'm going, what are you talking about, man? And he went on to say, have you ever tried to bake a cake without a bowl? You, you crack two, two eggs and you put them down. You put a cup of flour and you spread it all around. And then you put some butter in there and then you put some vanilla. And he said, what do you end up with? And everybody almost said, you got a mess. You got all of this stuff all over the kitchen. You don't have anything to hold it together. 
He said that's the same yeah. thing with a family without a home. You end up with a Absolutely. mess. There's nowhere to do yeah. the homework. There's nowhere to have dinner together. There's nowhere where that bonding happens in a family and that training passed down generation from generation to generation. You end up with a mess. And that is no surprise to me that when you look at the social determinants of health or poor health, if you will, if you don't have good housing, uh, and let alone if you get into a housing that has lead-based paint in it or you have um, lichen flint lead in the water or you have some other environmental issue that causes health issues, then, yeah, housing is critical to good health. So I got that. I got that. The second point I heard you say was that when you look at building houses in New York City or Washington, D.C. or Los Angeles and almost anywhere, urban or rural, if you look at the cost of the housing, HUD says, like, you should only be spending 30%, 33% of your gross income for housing, okay? And if you look at your gross income at 30%, what you bring home, that's probably up to 40 or 50% of your bring home to housing. And in New York, it may be 50% of your gross <laughs> that goes to housing, and when you look at that, you find out that people that are essential workers cannot live essentially. They cannot get what they need. I get it. And I just wanted to bring that out because it's so critical. If you don't yeah. have good housing, you end up with poor health. And yeah. Yeah. if you don't make enough money, you can't get good housing. It's just critical in that formula. Yeah, yeah, and 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 that's what you know. Um, working with some of the local Congress people, uh, Congresswoman Yvette Clark in particular, we've had a series of you know working meetings with her in supporting her legislation that would change the AMI, the average medium income, because in Brooklyn, uh, that average medium income was the the geographic area included Trump Tower. Now, hold, hold, one know, hold one second. I, hold one second. I got to. We got to go to our second break, and we're going to come back to the average median income and what it is for people in our neighborhood, not what it is for the whole. Because that average that is so different, and I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired and seeing so many of us sick. So many right. of people in the black community and in brown and native communities. We'll be right back uh, right after this message. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative. We have Mr. Roger Green on the show. And we were talking about the average median income of Brooklyn, New York, before we took the break. And, Roger, you were just saying, as I interrupted you, sorry about that, that the Trump Towers is included in that average median income. So what were you getting to there? Well, I mean, it distorts what is a real average median income. Um, it distorts the policies that would provide uh, authentic, affordable housing for working families, particularly um, work, uh, workers who are associated with the service industries, by example, which includes health care, includes, you know, hotel workers, you know, all of the key uh, workers who anchor the economic infrastructure of the city. 
And so Trump Tower should not be part of that formulation, the calculation. And so we've been working with uh, Congresswoman Yvette Clark, who has um, a proposal in to um, reform and change the, uh, the AMI. That's what it's called, Average Medium Income uh, Formula uh, for Housing within the federal government, uh, within HUD. And here again, we were um, getting ready to have a, a major town meeting around this issue, um, actually a field hearing uh, with the uh, Congresswoman's uh, office, and then the COVID hit. Uh, so a lot of this work was being done, and, you know, COVID hit. But this, this actually the, the crisis has actually raised more public awareness around these critical issues. And, and, you know, we've been able to move the dial with a number of the public officials, elected officials, uh, to support our positions now because of uh, COVID. So, again, you know, Dr. King said, you know, a crisis is both the time of despair and the time of opportunity. You know, the, the, the difference between despair and opportunity is how you lead. And, and I think with the type of, you know, um, collective leadership that we've tried to apply as best as possible, um, we're beginning to see you know, some real progress. Well, I want to get to that real progress, but I, I just need my, my math teacher in me want to spend a little bit more time on this average median income because an average is you look at everybody's income and a family of four is what most of the statisticians look at. What's the average median income from a family of four. So you've got some people at a high and you got some people at a low and you take that average. So that average yeah. gets to be very distorted, particularly if you're in an area like New York, like Manhattan, Brooklyn, where you've got people that, that work on Wall Street that they may be making million dollars a year, um, five million a year. You've, you've got these people that very, very, very high income and then if you look at the bottom, let's say 50% of the population in terms of income, they may have a $25,000, $50,000 average income. So what you're saying is you got to take a look at, I, I would want to take a look at the working folk. What's their average income, particularly Absolutely. when you want to do workplace housing, workforce housing? Absolutely. Absolutely. What That's right. Is their average income, what's the average income of that nurse that people's lives depended on. Absolutely. So, That's right. Yeah. You, you're right there. You know, you know, we need to elect you to Congress. You're right there. <laughs> well, that's my that's teaching it. math for 10 years of and about eight years. Well, I've, I've taught 12 years in my career, six years within math and six years with marketing. But even when I taught marketing, a lot of it was teaching kids the math so they could do the the analysis of, of, of the markets. Uh, That's right. So I've taught math for 12 years, and this average is it, it, it can be so distorted when you base policy on an average uh, because you can leave people out. And those people that make a billion dollars, they don't need workforce housing. Uh, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And that's why we, we often cite that when they take the average for New York City, they include Trump Towers. And then people, you know, they get it then. They said Trump Towers is in the average. You know, no. And and you're right. It should be specific to workforce housing uh, 
to calculate the average income for you know working class families. Absolutely. And so you say there's two ways of changing this formula. One is pay those nurses, and I just use nurses, pay those healthcare workers more money okay, so they can afford the house that's on the market today, or lower the price of the housing, and that normally takes tax dollars. So we all of us pay into the taxes, and both the state and the federal can take tax dollars, create housing that working I call working poor, particularly in New York and L.A. and D.C. and Chicago, that they can't afford a good place, and that's limited equity housing co-ops, and you've already mentioned that. That's right. Okay. Absolutely. Well, we we think we need to do both. Um, You know, the the unions are right now preparing to go into contract negotiations with the League of Hospitals, which covers not only the hospitals but also the nursing homes. And our community labor coalition will be supporting them in their drive to ensure that they have appropriate compensation for their work in the new contract. While at the same time, you know, we're, you know, organizing meetings with the developers to ensure that they, you know, come up with a a new formula for workforce housing. And we're also obviously working with the Congress people, in this case, Congresswoman Yvette Clark and Congressman Hakeem Jeffries to put out proposals as part of the forward uh, to be incorporated into the Biden-Harris Infrastructure and Jobs Bill, which includes a housing bucket uh, to change the AMI formula. And so, you know, we're approaching it in, you know, in all three approaches, you know, developers, public sector, you know, with the Congress, and then we'll be actively supporting the healthcare workers as they a new contract with the League of Hospitals. Well, Carmen Waites Noble, you may know that name. She's from New York. Uh, She's one of mine, too. She's been on the show several times, and she said it would be great if we paid essential workers an essential salary, an essential wage. Absolutely. And I I thought, and and, and she she also said that if the healthcare workers owned the hospitals and those nursing homes, they would have had PPEs. They would have made sure yeah. they had what they needed. And she Absolutely. makes some, some extremely good points, uh, an attorney uh, that works in this world. And unfortunately, her family was hit hard by COVID, yeah. several deaths Absolutely. in her family. Yeah. Just a strong, strong woman who I, I just have learned to admire, just really, really great and she and michael peck are good friends you mentioned mike already uh, yes so yes. those two great great people in this in this cooperative world and and i i'd say a citizen of the world yeah so unfortunately I don't have a whole lot more time to talk about what i really want to talk about in this what are you doing now and what will you do to build back better and that's what you said joe biden is already sitting there doing he and it's kamala harris mm-hmm. build back better and to overcome these these pandemics we talked about. Well, well, I think again, um, since it was a healthcare crisis, I think nationally in local communities um, that everyone should apply pressure to create uh, policies and programs that redirect the purchasing power of the healthcare system back into the local economies. And then I would suggest that 
folks seriously consider doing that by um, creating strategic partnerships with organized labor to create unionized worker co-ops as uh, enterprises that would be aligned with those local supply chains, not just in New York, but throughout the nation. The, the, the other thing that we're doing is we're pushing for um, law called, you know, a right of first refusal uh, to enable incumbent workers to have the first right to purchase the enterprises, many of them that are going to be sold by baby boomers who at this point in their life are looking to retire. Before the pandemic, there's estimation of $10 trillion in assets that would be transferred or lost. And so we think that we need in New York State a right of first refusal to enable incumbent workers to purchase those um, those businesses and to do so as a conversion into employee ownership. And love in, it. In the health- I love it. Yeah, and in the healthcare sector, um, but we, we, we've introduced the, the concept um, to the Attorney General Tish James, and she has expressed uh, support for it. And so it's now really just, uh, you know, um, the detailed work that has to be done. And we think that in, in New York, one of the first areas that we would prioritize are nursing homes. Uh, a number of the private equity companies have been trying to purchase up the entire nursing home industry, and we think that would be a disaster because private equity usually uses an extraction model, five years ownership, and they, you know, reduce the workers uh, to patient ratio, which impacts on patient care, and then they usually sell. And usually those same assets are turned into, unfortunately, co-ops for the one percenters. So, We've, we've approached the Attorney General and other elected officials to support right the first refusal law, and they, that's building up uh, great momentum, and I'm hopeful that hopefully by next year we will have uh, legislation and that and then enables the uh, unions to begin to, um, to negotiate for ownership of those nursing homes, which would be a first type of model within the healthcare sector like that. And we do have support from um, the working group of 1199 uh, unionized uh, co-op working group, Sewal Amin and Senior Executive Vice President Yvonne Armstrong in support of that. Uh, Yvonne um, traveled with us to Mondragon to to witness you know, the Mondragon uh, Cooperative Federation and she came back committed um, to looking at uh, securing ownership of the nursing home. And uh, we took 14 elected officials to Mondragon um, from Brooklyn, central Brooklyn and the South Bronx, and they're ready, you know, I can say that, to support, you know, the efforts that we've been working on, which includes the health enterprise hubs, the legislation for a right of first refusal, community land trusts, you know. So though the you know, movement is fragile, I think we're building up momentum. And again, the crisis exposed the contradictions and um, the rationale for why we should move in this direction. And so to, you know, um, the the listener, I would say that we don't have any proprietorship over these concepts. They come out of a body of knowledge that, you know, comes from you, Vernon, the work that you've done over the years, Michael Peck and uh, Carmen at the uh, CUNY Law and so many other people 
going all the way back to Dr. Du Bois and Marcus Garvey and Ella Baker, you know, and Daniel Hamer, you can name them. And so we need to build on that body of knowledge, you know, adapt it for our current times and look Roger, at how we can create economic I, democracy. Yeah. Our, our engineer is saying we have to take our final break, and I really want to come back and talk about how we build on that hit, on that past, on that history to, for, for our future. We'll be right back. Please don't touch that dial. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. This program is being brought to you by the National Cooperative Bank, whose mission is to support and be an advocate for Americans' cooperatives and their members especially in low-income communities like Brooklyn, by providing innovative financial and related services. And NCB does a lot of financing of cooperative housing in, in Brooklyn. But you were talking about history, Roger, before we took our break. And I just want everybody to, to know about Jessica Gordon-Memhard's book, Collective Carriage, A History of yeah. African-American Cooperative Economic Thought and Practices, it took this lady 15 years of research, and she told me that whenever uh, she said she was going to do this, when she started, people told her blacks were not into co-ops. And uh, she was amazed at the history, and she said this this has been out for about 10, 12 years now. Yes. She keeps learning, keeps getting more and more information uh, about all of the people that you talked about. It's like I have it that anybody in the civil rights movement, with Bernard Rustin or Martin Luther King or just anybody you could think of, they promoted cooperative uh, business model or they were influenced by. Yes. Or both in some cases. So we have a huge history, and I have it that we brought it over here from West Africa. And then on, on these plantations, we had borough societies uh, where we pooled our little resources together and we buried those, or we pooled our resources together and we created churches. And out of those churches, the pooled resources, whether it's 10% of what you make or 1%, whatever you gave, all these historical black colleges came. So we created institutions with little or nothing. And we don't, we don't clap and give ourselves knowledge for that too often. And Jessica Gordon-Emhard has documented a lot of this. And the reason that NCB sponsors this program is to get more people to know about co-ops, to do what you're doing, to get people out there to know, hey, we can get these health systems, uh, university systems, we can get these manufacturers that are retiring baby boomers, we can convert those into cooperatives so that those employees create wealth, social, financial wealth, and feel better about themselves. So, yeah, this is, this is wonderful stuff that you're talking about. What message do you have for the Biden administration as they want to build back better? I think that build back better should have a component in there that deals with both um, recovery and repair. You know, you know, to, for the African-American community and the Latinx community, and the Asian community to just recover only means that we're going to be back at the point that we were in before the COVID hit, 
which was not a good place, you know. Um, no. Again. Whole, and that's whole, not better. That's not better. Okay. So you need a repair component, which is, you know, a reparations type of, um, of proposal. And reparations, the etymology means, you know, basically to repair, you know. So I think within that, we need, like, I guess I would call it a third good Marshall plan, you know. A Marshall plan with the values of a third good Marshall, you know that emphasizes equity, that emphasizes, again, to repair the injustices, both economic uh, injustices that many communities have suffered from. And in that context, I think that uh, emphasis on policy should be support for worker co-ops, limited equity co-ops in the housing, uh, community land trusts, and definitely, I think, unionized worker co-ops policies that would incentivize unions uh, to work with manufacturers and other uh, um, sectors to create the essential products that the nation will need moving forward, but doing it in a way that enables uh, people to secure both a living wage and shared profits and shared equity. And that's economic democracy. You know, if you're going to build back better, you have to move this democratic republic from being limited to essentially a political democracy uh, to one that also embraces economic democracy. And that's pretty clear. That's the challenge of this century, and it's not going to change. We've got to ensure that a key component of it is also aligned with uh, a Green New Deal um, that addresses um, the enormous challenges that we face based upon the climate crisis and then understanding as it relates to issues of mass incarceration that a lot of that is driven this whole containment state that we see creating the crisis of the that we see between the police and our local uh, communities is absolutely uh, inextricably linked um, to again the structural racial and economic inequality when we look at since the crisis, the so-called uh, problem of, um, of crime in the community, it is the culture of violence. And that culture of violence originates from the most extreme form of human alienation, you know, that exists because people are unemployed and they are pushed into the underground economy. We know that if the healthcare sector is reorganized to create jobs that, you know, we can and we're building housing, we can go to these young folks and say, hey, uh, turn in your killing gun for a construction gun. Um, so all of this has to be part of what, you know, my good friend Michael Peck calls, you know, a virtuous cycle of, of public policy that creates a virtuous cycle as opposed to a vicious cycle. And And I think that's what we need. And we need to be prepared to organize and to fight for it. I think, unfortunately, when Obama was in office and elected, and particularly in the black community, we had um, eight years inauguration party uh, without any critical critique and programs that would be needed to push him to do the right thing. We cannot afford to do that this time around. Seeing what happened in the Capitol on January 6th, it's pretty clear that there are some forces out there that would uh, definitely prepare to use any means necessary to take the community, the nation, in a wrong direction. And so through organizing, 
building institutions, organizations nationally around these core principles. I think, you know, we will move uh, this avowed democratic republic in the right direction, you know. So that that, that, that would be my, my stance, you know, and that's what I think. And I think there are other people, like, you know, who are of the same spirit, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll achieve those aspirations. So let, let me tell you about a group that, on the other side of the country, uh, in L.A., Downtown Crenshaw. And you could go to downtowncrenshaw.com and, and read about them. These are brothers and sisters in Crenshaw, which is a neighborhood in L.A. that is median income is much, much lower. I don't know if it's like 10% of or 5% of the median income of the white folk. But they are trying to buy a mall, 43 acres. They call it 40 acres in a mall. And what's amazing, Roger, is Deutsche Bank, with their broker firm, has put this out four times to white developers, and they won't even entertain this group's uh, bid for their proposal, 43 acres. They've collected $28 million, and they have somebody that would fund the balance. They're talking about buying it for $115 million and $900 million, so a billion-dollar development. And these brothers and sisters out there are, are have it together, and anybody out there could do like I did and, you know, put in five or ten dollars. Go to downtown Crenshaw, donate five or ten dollars, and support them in building this. And then also getting our Congress people to to get involved. It's, it's redlining, commercial redlining. That's how I call it. And it's yeah. amazing that that's going on today. Uh, yeah. So yeah, and everything that you're saying, I've had them on the show. They're saying the same kinds of things. They want in that mall. They want to put worker co-ops. Limited housing co-ops, people in the community owning the mall, get a, a, a pricing that they can afford, which if these white developers get into it, they're going to build housing for the one percenters. Yeah. Sir, you got yeah. 30 seconds. What do you want to leave people with? I think you've already left us with enough. <laughs> do you have any other message? You know, uh, Sergeant's Truth used to say before beginning and ending, you know, her remarks that it's always good to be in the company of the faithful. And so that's all I would say, Vernon. You know, good to be in your company and the company, I'm sure, of so many other uh, folks that are listening to this around the nation who are faithful to the, you know, to this cause to create a more uh, just society. So that's all I would say. And, and again, thank you for your work. I really appreciate your work. And um, thank you, Beth. Yeah, thank you, thank bro. You. We got, we've got to run everybody out there. Live cooperatively this week, and let's build uh, a more perfect union. Thank you, guys.